the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our second hour, we'll hear from Robert Cicero. He's the author of The Economics of Parables. And today is National Hot Dog Day. It's the third Wednesday of July. We'll talk all about the, uh, the occasion and whether ketchup, mustard, or mayo are the preferred condiments. But in more serious news, President Biden announced today that he's going to uh, be implementing a number of executive actions focused on combating climate change. His executive actions come after Senator Joe Manchin reportedly said that he's not going to support a package before the midterm elections that includes any provisions on energy and climate, with his spokesperson telling uh, media outlets that Manchin wants to avoid taking steps that add fuel to the inflation fire. Included in the executive actions the president announced earlier today is an effort to protect communities from extreme heat and dangerous climate impacts, which includes $2.3 billion in funding for the Federal Emergency Management Agency's Building Resilient Infrastructure and Communities Program in 2022. It's intended to help communities increase resilience to heat waves, drought, wildfires, floods, hurricanes, and other hazards by preparing before disaster strikes, according to the White House. The executive actions also included an effort to lower cooling costs for communities who are suffering from extreme heat as the White House is issuing guidance that will assist states, tribes and territories in their funding for community cooling centers, as well as helping people within their communities get access to cooling equipment. Additionally, the administration is going to consider potential wind power projects in the Gulf of Mexico which is being proposed off the coast of Galveston, Texas, and off the coast of Lake Charles, Louisiana. The White House estimates that the projects have the potential to power over 3 million homes with clean energy. The president's also directing the Secretary of the Interior to advance clean energy development off the coast of Florida, Georgia, South Carolina, and North Carolina to ensure that these southern states will be able to benefit from good-paying jobs and the burgeoning offshore wind industry. The president said while announcing his executive actions in uh, Somerset, Massachusetts, that climate change is an emergency. He didn't exactly declare a state of emergency, but said it is an emergency. This is an emergency and an emergency. And I will I'm quoting and I will look uh, at uh, at it in that way. The president said I said last week, say it again, loud and clear as president. I use my executive powers to combat climate change, the climate crisis in the absence of congressional action. Well, an executive um, uh, rule does not carry the same weight as um, legislative authority. And chances are what he announced today is not likely to come to pass, but we'll continue to follow the story. A senior White House administration official said that the climate crisis is an urgent challenge, adding that what has already been unleashed in terms of climate is devastating. I wish he had that same resolve, sense of urgency and recognized the crisis when it comes to the uh, level of inflation. Also, the president called the climate change emergency on Wednesday 
uh, the responsibility of the Republicans saying since Congress is not acting as it should. And these guys here are. But we're not getting any Republican votes. This is an emergency, the president said from his podium there, apparently gesturing at Democrats around him. The president stopped short of issuing a national climate emergency, but said he would use executive powers to address the issue. Congressional Democrats have blocked a resolution that would have condemned the violence directed at churches and pro-life organizations by pro-abortion activists in recent months. On Tuesday, Representative Mike Johnson, a Republican out of Louisiana, introduced House Resolution 1233 that would express the sense of the House of Representatives condemning the recent attacks on pro-life facilities, groups and churches. The resolution noted that since May of 2022, the leak of the Supreme Court draft opinion in Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization, individuals professing anti-life views have targeted, destroyed or vandalized numerous pro-life facilities, groups and even churches to further their radical cause. Well, the leaked Dobbs uh, draft published by Politico indicated that a majority of Supreme Court justices were inclined to reverse the 73 decision, Roe. Uh, that legalized abortion nationwide. The final um, Dobbs ruling released on the 24th of June ultimately reversed Roe and stated the Constitution doesn't confer a right to abortion. The resolution listed examples of the vandalism directed at churches and pro-life organizations before and after Dobbs. Johnson's resolution would have declared that the House condemns recent attacks of violence, vandalism and destruction against pro-life facilities, groups and churches, recognizes the sanctity of life and the important role pro-life facilities, groups and churches play in supporting pregnant women, infants and families. Apparently, that was a bridge too far. The resolution urged the Biden administration to use all appropriate law enforcement authorities to uphold public safety and to protect the rights of such organizations. Well, Johnson elaborated on the need for the resolution on the House floor as the House considered the Transportation, Housing and Urban Development and Related Agencies Appropriations Act, uh, the Right to Contraception Act and the Respect for Marriage Act. If the previous question is defeated, Republicans will amend the rule to immediately consider House Resolution 1233. Johnson vowed the previous question was not defeated as the House agreed to begin debate on the three pieces of legislation in a party line vote. Later Tuesday, the House approved the Respect for Marriage Act, which would codify same-sex marriage into federal law, accumulating support from all Democrats and 47 Republicans. The Twitter account for Republicans on the House Rules Committee shared a video of Johnson's speech on the House floor. You might want to check that out. Well, the push to pass the Right to Contraception Act and the Respect for Marriage Act, two of the three pieces of legislation House Democrats are seeking to begin debate on, suggests that Dobbs, uh, the ruling, was very much on their minds. Progressives have feared that the Dobbs decision could pave the way for the U.S. Supreme Court to consider other landmark Supreme Court rulings. The majority opinion written by Justice Alito insisted that this decision concerns the constitutional right to abortion and no other right, adding nothing in this opinion should be understood to cast doubt on precedents that do not concern abortion. However, Clarence Thomas made specific reference to some of these issues in his um, concurring opinion in that uh, that ruling. One in five adults in the United States, equivalent to about 50 million people, believe that political violence is justified, at least in some circumstances. That's according to a new mega survey. 
A team of medical and public health scientists at the University of California, Davis, enlisted the opinions of almost 9,000 people across the country to explore how far willingness to engage in political violence now goes. We'll tell you more about the outcome of that survey in just a few moments, but we do need to take a quick break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, a team of medical and public health scientists at the University of California, Davis, enlisted the opinions of some 9,000 people across the country to discover just how far and how willing people are to engage in political violence. Well, they discovered that mistrust and alienation from the democratic institutions have reached such a peak that substantial minorities of the American people now endorse violence as a means toward political ends. The prospect of large-scale violence in the near future is entirely plausible, according to the scientists in their warning. A hardcore rump in the U.S. population, the survey recorded, uh, amounting to 3% or by extrapolation, 7 million people believe that political violence is usually or always justified. Almost one in four of the respondents, equivalent to more than 60 million Americans, could conceive of violence being justified to preserve an American way of life based on Western European traditions. Most alarmingly, 7.1% said that they would be willing to kill a person to advance an important political goal. The UC Davis team points out that extrapolated the uh, to U.S. society at large, that's the equivalent of 18 million Americans. The study, Views of American Democracy and Society and Support for Political Violence, was led by uh, a trio of publishers um, at MedRivDiv, or something very like that, over three weeks. Beginning in May, the UC Davis researchers gathered the views of a representative sample of about 8,600 people, a relatively small sample. They set out to discover just how open individuals in the country are to engaging in political violence, given the, the pummeling U.S. democracy has taken in recent years. Extreme political polarization, skepticism about government and democratic institutions, rising gun violence and increased firearm sales, together with the rampant spread of conspiracy theories and misinformation, have combined into what they refer to as a toxic soup. Its consequences were on display on January 6th when hundreds stormed the Capitol. Against this backdrop, the study uncovers disturbing signs of seething discontent and deep unease just beneath the surface of U.S. society. More than two-thirds of the respondents said that they feared the country was facing serious threat to democracy. Of course, that's a phrase that's often used and misused by politicians. Remarkably, just over half of the sample group, 50.1% agreed with a contention that in the next few years, the U.S. would confront another civil war. With these um, kinds of concerns, it does raise questions about the future of the republic. Well, 47 Republican members of the U.S. House of Representatives joined 220 Democrats uh, on Tuesday in voting to enshrine homosexual marriage into federal law. The Respect for Marriage Act was passed 267 to 157 by the House with seven members not voting. The bill was sponsored by Representative Jared Nadler a and is designed rather to be a backdrop if the Supreme Court someday issues a decision overturning Obergfell versus Hodges, the 2015 opinion in which the court declared that the 14th Amendment had created a right for two people of the same sex to marry each other. 
The Obergefell decision was written by Justice Anthony Kennedy, decided in a 5-4 vote. I rise today in strong support for the Respect for Marriage Act, bipartisan and bicameral legislation, to enshrine into law a fundamental freedom, the right to marry whomever you choose, a quote from Speaker Pelosi on the House floor. The 47 Republicans who voted to enshrine same-sex marriage in federal law included, well, I won't go over all of their names, but this was a stopgap measure in the event that the Supreme Court were to revisit the subject, which they've stated in their decision overturning Roe was not the case. Saying they're fed up with the left, Hispanic voters predict a red wave, saying Democrats use handouts and rhetoric to appease minorities. The Hispanic Americans interviewed agreed that Democrats have lost touch with the working class. Calling it a predator threat, at least 181 K-12 educators have been charged with child sex crimes in the first half of 2022. Code Red, experts say the defund movement and media vilification are contributing to police suicides. And in their unending assault, former acting DHS Secretary Chad Wolf writes, President Biden's political attack on Border Patrol agents continues even though they were exonerated. Saying there is no freedom to be funny, John Cleese warns that wokeness is having a disastrous impact on comedy. On primary night, a Trump-backed candidate is the projected winner in a hot Maryland race. And calling him out of touch, President Biden comes under fire for hyping falling gas prices while inflation continues to rise. Beto's benefactor, George Soros, has contributed $1 million to Beto O'Rourke's Texas gubernatorial campaign. In a family affair, Maxine Waters paid her daughter another $16,500 in campaign funds, adding to $1.2 million in previous payments. Saying, go home, little boy, Prince Harry's U.N. speech condemning America gets ripped to shreds. Oregon voters will have an opportunity to decide on the nation's strictest gun control proposal at the polls in November. We'll decide on one of the nation's um, gun control proposals from around the country at the polls. Oregon Secretary of State uh, Shamia Fagan's uh, elections division determined on Monday that Initiative 17, also known as the Reduction of Gun Violence Act, garnered enough valid signatures to qualify for the ballot during the general election scheduled for the 8th of November this year. Election officials said 131,671 signatures were validated, more than the minimum required. The proposal has less than a third of the signatures required in May, but high-profile mass shootings at Buffalo and at a grocery store in Buffalo and Uvalde at an elementary school and the 4th of July parade violence in the Chicago suburb of Highland Park sent volunteers and donations pouring in, with signatures ballooning by the end of June and into this month, Oregon Public Broadcasting reported. The measure would ban large-capacity magazines over 10 rounds, except for current owners, law enforcement, and military, and require a permit to purchase any gun. To qualify for a permit, an applicant would need to complete an approved firearm safety course, pay a fee, provide personal information, submit to fingerprinting and photographing, and pass a criminal background check. The state police would create a firearms database. Applicants would apply for the permit from the local police chief, county sheriff, or their designees. The National Rifle Association's Institute for Legislative Action has denounced the initiative, saying on its uh, website that these anti-gun citizens are coming after you, in all caps, the law-abiding firearms owners in Oregon, and your guns. Again, that ballot measure will be on the Oregon ballot in November.
The U.S. Army is expecting to cut the size of its forces in the coming years due to recruiting difficulties, which has already left 10,000 soldiers short of their goal for this year. The problems are due to a number of factors, including competing with private companies to attract candidates, low unemployment, as well as spending much of the past two years during the coronavirus pandemic, unable to hold face-to-face meetings with potential recruits at schools or fairs, which they had typically relied on. We've got unprecedented challenges with both the post-COVID-19 environment and labor market, but also competition with private companies that have changed their incentives over time. Army Vice Chief of Staff General Joseph Martin told the House Armed Services Committee at a hearing on Tuesday. U.S. Army Secretary Christine Warmoth uh, backed this up, telling the Associated Press that they're facing our most challenging recruiting environment since the inception of the all-volunteer force. Disney said it's ditching fairy godmothers for more inclusive, gender-neutral titles at dress-up boutiques inside the theme parks, and some fans are less than enchanted with the news. Specifically, the Mouse House is getting rid of the fairy godmother title at its Bibbidi-Bobbidi Boutique, located in both Disney World and Disneyland, according to an update on Disney Resort and uh, um, Walt Disney World Resort websites. The salons, which give makeovers to kids ages 3 to 12 to transform them into princesses or knights, will reopen from pandemic-era closures in August, the company said this week. When they return, employees who were formerly called fairy godmothers in training will now be called fairy godmother apprentices. I'm not sure what the difference is, except that I suppose you could be either gender if you're an apprentice. This way, cast members that might not identify as female can still be part of the process to dress up and style the children without having to refer to themselves as a female Disney character, according to the Disney blog. Well, the news set off some Disney uh, fans with who felt that the um, mouse house is going overboard, leaning into woke culture. This is a mental illness. The magic is gone, wrote one Twitter user. Get woke, go broke, tweeted another. I hate this world, another Twitter user wrote um, of the news, while another tweeted, birthing people apprentices, an apparent riff on the term fairy godmother apprentice, comparing it to the ridiculed gender-neutral term birthing people. Recently, Disney has made a push to appear more inclusive and politically correct, angering some Disney diehards. I am a victor... It's a film. It aims to debunk dangerous uh, narratives that black Americans must be victims. Kendall Qualls felt obligated to do something after rhetoric from the left didn't align with his own story and that of many others. We'll tell you more about it when we return from a break here in just a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. And coming up in our next hour, we'll hear from Robert Cicero, uh, author of The Economics of the Parables. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, there's a new documentary that aims to debunk the liberal talking point that America is systematically racist and minorities are victims by telling powerful stories of black victors who thrived academically and professionally. I am a victor. It begins with legendary newsman Walter Cronkite making a somber announcement in 1968 that civil rights pioneer Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. had been assassinated. The 55-minute film then examines what it uh, frames as the two different paths for black Americans since King's death. Well, according to the film, many black Americans took a path that led to an Afrocentric, secular and political activist excursion, while others chose a road rooted in the values and principles of their parents and grandparents to live a life filled with love and respect. 
The result was what filmmakers call a cultural genocide, which some emerged um, as victims, while the other group came away victorious. Promotional materials for the film feature the title, I Am a Victim, with the word victim crossed out and replaced with victor. Successful black Americans identified as victors share their stories throughout the film. Among them is I Am a Victor executive producer and Army veteran Kendall Qualls, a successful businessman who was the president of Take Charge, the group behind the film. The Minnesota-based Qualls was, has served as an executive at several health care companies and has also dabbled in politics, challenged Representative Dean Phillips, a Democrat from Minnesota, in Minnesota's 3rd Congressional District back in 2020, but fall, uh, fell short. He's also made a successful bid for the GOP gubernatorial nomination in Minnesota this year. He was inspired to tell his story when Representative Ilhan Omar and other far-left Democrats continuously painted a picture of black, black Americans he didn't feel was accurate. The narrative that started coming out specifically from Ilhan Omar and the progressive left that our country was systematically racist, racist. It's full of white supremacists and people can't uh, get ahead and all of that stuff. From my perspective, he went on to say in the film, you're talking to a guy that as a kid, I was called a ghetto kid, trailer trash, because I lived in Harlem, New York, with my divorced mom. And then later with my father in Oklahoma in a trailer park. And a guy like me should not do well academically, professionally, Qual says. I was able to, you know, serve in the military, go to school, get a graduate degree, become a VP of a Fortune 100 company. He continues, the people that helped me along the way, some of them were black and many of them were not. They didn't uh, look uh, they didn't look like me. And this narrative uh, that was coming out of the progressive left, I felt was an absolute lie and it was dangerous. Qualls felt obligated to respond. And the idea for the film was born again. The title, I am a victor and will be available shortly. Well, in a nuanced view, Democrats are facing a conservative streak among African-American churchgoers opposed to abortion. According to The New York Times, they issued it as a warning in a failure. CNN, MSNBC, ABC, CBS and NBC ignored Nancy Pelosi's husband buying over one million dollars of computer chip stock ahead of a vote in Congress. Paul Pelosi, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's husband, made a stock purchase of over one million dollars in a computer chip company just weeks before a potential vote in Congress, which could give a massive subsidy to the industry. But anyone who relied on uh, CNN, MSNBC, ABC, CBS or NBC for information would have no idea. Mr. Pelosi made a purchase of between one and five million dollars shares of um, NVIDIA, a semiconductor company, according to a disclosure filing made by Speaker Pelosi's office. He exercised 200 call options or 20,000 shares, the disclosure states. The disclosure raised eyebrows as Reuters reported that the Senate could vote on a bill that contains billions of dollars in subsidies within the semiconductor industry as early as Tuesday. However, these networks failed to mention Paul Pelosi on the air from when it broke in the 15th of July, according to a search of transcripts. Sadly, this is endemic in Washington on both sides of the political aisle. Jeffrey is back, or at least maybe. Toys R Us is looking to make a brick-and-mortar retail return in time for the holidays. Of course, who knows what you can afford by then. Saying you got to do what you got to do, NBA champ Andrew Wiggins says he regrets getting the COVID vaccine. The San Diego School District has reinstated its mask mandates, Mask mandates are returning to the uh, Unified School District starting Monday. The school board president, Dr. Sharon 
Whitehurst Payne makes no apologies for the move. We will continue to monitor the COVID-19 community level according to the CDC and county data, and we will communicate if there are any changes in two weeks. The school district shared in a letter sent to students and parents. Anthony LaMesa weighs in, saying they could go to our school that's online. They can opt not to return to the regular school, but to go to school where they don't have to go to school um, at all other than via Zoom. President Whitehurst Payne on those who don't want to mask. In other words, just don't come. They dropped their uh, mask mandate in April following a decrease in COVID-19 cases, hospitalizations and death. However, in May, the district said that the mandate would return as long as the uh, county was classified by the CDC as having high transmission levels of COVID, which is determined by case counts and hospital admissions. Over the last seven days, San Diego has recorded 383 new cases per 100,000, a nearly 5 percent jump from the previous week. The House votes to enshrine same-sex marriage into law with the help from 47 Republicans, even though the Supreme Court has not sought to or taken up a case that would address the issue. China is trying to stop Speaker Pelosi from visiting Taiwan by vowing strong measures, in quotes. What that means exactly, we don't know. The Wall Street Journal reports that China warned that a Taiwan visit by House Speaker Nancy Pelosi would deeply damage relations with the U.S. and what would be one of the highest level U.S. trips to the island in years amid rancor between Washington and Beijing. Zhao Linjiang, a spokesperson for China's foreign ministry, told a Tuesday press briefing that such a visit would have a severe negative impact on the political foundation of China-U.S. relations and send a gravely wrong signal to Taiwan independent separatist forces. The Financial Times reported this week that Ms. Pelosi plans to visit Taiwan in August. The Speaker's office declined to comment on international travel, citing security protocols, but a person familiar with the Speaker's plan said a trip to Taiwan had been discussed as a possibility as part of a broader Asia trip but wasn't yet confirmed. The Associated Press says that China has vowed to annex Uh, Taiwan by force if necessary and has advertised that threat by flying warplanes near Taiwanese airspace and holding military exercises based on invasion scenarios. It says those actions are aimed at deterring advocates of the island's formal independence and foreign allies, principally the U.S., from coming to its aid more than 70 years after the side split amid civil war. A visit by Pelosi would severely undermine China's sovereignty and territorial integrity, gravely impact the foundation of China-U.S. relations, and send a seriously wrong signal to the independent sources, Zhao said at a daily briefing. If the U.S. were to insist on going down the wrong path, China will take resolute and strong measures to safeguard its sovereignty and territorial integrity, Zhao said. China in recent days has also rehatched um, its rhetoric over U.S. arms sales in Taiwan, demanding the cancellation of a deal worth approximately $108 million that would boost its arms forces' chances of survival against its much bigger foe. The Department of Homeland Security is forming a new Office of Health Security tasked with public health for illegal immigrants in custody at the border. The U.S. Department of Homeland Security this week established the office, a new office that will serve as the principal medical workforce health and safety and public health authority for the Department of Homeland Security. Led by the DHS chief medical officer, the Office of Health Security will unify the department's medical workforce health and safety and public health functions under one organization. The reorganization will pioneer best-in-class workforce health, safety, work-life, and wellness programs, and suitable, timely care for non-citizens in our care and custody. The 
Office of Health Security will uh, will um, be an organize, uh, will have an organizational structure and design that enables coordination and standardization of care while helping enhance our workforce and national preparedness. They went on to say, well, Breitbart weighing in said the creation of the agency comes while the administration continues releasing tens of thousands of border crossers into the United States interior every month without testing them for Chinese coronavirus. And DHS reporter Ellen M. Gilmer says DHS's new health security office and the works of, for the past year plus is official. Announcement comes just an hour before hearing on the agency's countering WMD office where the chief medical officer is currently situated. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in the second hour, Robert Sirico, I've said it every way possible, it's Sirico, author of The Economics of the Parables. We'll also uh, take a look at National Hot Dog Day. Today is just such a day. Well, women's tennis star Martina Navratilova speaks out against Leah Thomas, NC2A Women of, Woman of the Year nomination, uh, she, um, the women's tennis star, is criticizing the NC2A for allowing the University of Pennsylvania to nominate transgender swimmer Thomas to be Woman of the Year. Navratilova is a member of the LGBTQ plus community herself. She's been a vocal critic of the NC2A for allowing Thomas, a biological male, to compete against women and dominate the competition field. Uh, she said, not enough fabulous biological women athletes, NC2A. What's going on with you? The Los Angeles Times in 1985, uh, said last year, Martina Lavratilova bristled at the suggestion made by uh, another tennis player that she wouldn't stand a chance against the world's number 100 ranked men's player, even after teaming with Pam Schreiber to win the challenge. Navratilova has conceded the obvious. I know I would lose to a man, she says. Uh, my coach still beats me. There's no way for me to compete. The men are quicker, stronger. I take it as a compliment that people even wonder how I would do. If Navratilova could pick the opponent and the surface, she said, she might be able to beat a man maybe one of 10, one out of 20 times. So at least she's consistent on the point. Prominent Democrats staged an abortion protest outside the Supreme Court and, as planned, get arrested. Police arrested at least 17 House Democrats on Tuesday for blocking traffic outside the Supreme Court during a planned civil disobedience abortion protest. Video footage captured um, by Daily Signal's Doug Blair and Bernadette Hassan shows police escorting smiling Democratic New York Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez away from the court as lively band music can be heard in the background. The New York Democrat holds her hands behind her back as if she were handcuffed then lifts one fist in the air, shakes it, and then again uh, puts her hands behind her, giving the impression that she's been handcuffed smiling all the way. Greg Price weighs in saying she pretends to be handcuffed, raises her fist in salute, and then goes back to pretending to be handcuffed. And the insider says the members of Congress anticipated the possibility of getting arrested for blocking traffic at an intersection near the court. Capitol Police officers escorted lawmakers away from the intersection to process their arrests, according to multiple reports at the scene. The officers arrested a total of 34 people, including 16 members of Congress, Capitol Police tweeted. The Merriam-Webster Dictionary has revised the definition of female to cater to the LGBTQ agenda. Merriam-Webster's online dictionary has caved 
In order to appease woke activists, the dictionary publisher has added a secondary definition of female that defines the term as having a gender identity that is opposite the male. Uh, The key term here is gender identity, which demonstrates that Merriam-Webster maintains that gender is not directly connected to sex. A female is a woman. Trans-identified males are not female. However, according to trans activists, men can be women. This is not the only part of the definition that's changed in the online edition of Merriam-Webster. Notice the the primary definition of female of relating to or being uh, the sex that typically has the capacity to bear young or produce eggs. In Merriam-Webster's 10th edition, the dictionary defines the noun female as of relating to or being the sex that bears young or produces eggs. The change in the online edition to include the phrase typically has the capacity shows Merriam-Webster's attempt to include trans-identifying males in the definition of female. And while this phrase may refer to women who cannot bear children due to infertility, given their nod to gender identity and defining the word female, is um, it is uh, most likely another way to appease the trans community. Matt Walsh says it is bound to happen. Merriam-Webster has changed its dictionary definition of female to appease the trans activists. North Korea will send workers to help Russia rebuild captured territories in Ukraine. The Guardian announced that North Korea could send workers to two Russian-controlled territories in eastern Ukraine. That's according to Russia's ambassador in Pyongyang, a move that would pose a challenge to international sanctions against uh, the North's nuclear weapons program. According to the NK News, a Seoul-based website, Ambassador Alexander Matt Zagoria said that North Korean workers could help rebuild the war-shattered infrastructure in the self-proclaimed People's Republic of Donetsk and Luhansk. Uh, He says that there were potentially a lot of opportunities for economic cooperation between the North and the self-proclaimed republics in Ukraine's Donbass region, despite U.N. sanctions. His comments comes days after North Korea became one of the only few, one of only a few countries uh, to recognize the two territories, accusing the Ukrainian government of being part of Washington's hostile stance towards Pyongyang. National Review says that Pyongyang has also Uh, was also one of only five countries to vote against a U.N. resolution condemning Russia's invasion of Ukraine. The ambassador claimed that North Korea receives nothing for cooperating with Russia on the world stage and has said um, it just acted according to its conscience. The University of Michigan football coach Jim Harbaugh and his wife spoke at a Right to Life event. The insider reports the University of Michigan head football coach Jim Harbaugh and his wife, Sarah Harbaugh, spoke at a Right to Life anti-abortion fundraiser in Michigan on Monday night, according to the organization's website. Harbaugh and his wife offered remarks and pro-life testimony at the Plymouth Right to Life benefit dinner at the Inn at St. John's Plymouth. Right to Life's website said the representative from the University of Michigan told Insider that Harbaugh was not speaking on behalf of the university. He attended an event and shared his personal views as any citizen has the constitutional right to do. He has shared his personal beliefs, the university said. Fox News reported, I believe in having the courage to let the unborn be born, Harbaugh said at the event. I love life. I believe in having a loving care and respect for life and death. My faith and my uh, science are what drives this belief in me. 
quoting from Jeremiah, before I formed you in the mother wombs, in the uh, formed you in the mo- <laughs> in the womb, I knew you before you were born. I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. End quote. Harbaugh told people attending the Plymouth Right to Life dinner and auction over the weekend and an era where speaking up as a pro-lifer gets you tarnished by the outrage mob. It's great to see Harbaugh having the courage and conviction to take a stand. A Portland summer camp run by anarchists seeks to indoctrinate children. Parents in Portland, well, we can now send kids to the free social justice summer camp founded by anarchists. A group called Budding Roses, which was founded as a project of the Black Rose Rosa Negra Anarchist Foundation, uh, will hold a free two-week summer camp this month, open to students in fourth through eighth grades. The registration portal indicates students at the camp will explore social justice issues, youth leadership, arts, activism, games, and more. We believe that empowering youth to become critically engaged with social justice issues lays the groundwork for transformational social change tomorrow and today, Budding Roses says on its website. Epic Times weighs in, saying the resignation uh, is a step toward the what budding roses teaches children in the chant cops and borders we don't need them as with many sjw goals the camp's curriculum appears to be inflicting children with race obsession and graphic sexual concepts as can be seen in a blm coloring book espousing transgender affirmation and in a chant that compares the government to a rapist summer camp It's a climate emergency, at least for some little people. Special presidential envoy for climate John Kerry's family, well, that jet, has emitted over 300 metric tons of carbon dioxide since the Biden administration began. Federal data shows Kerry's family jet, a Gulfstream GIV SP, has made a total of 48 trips lasting more than 60 hours and admitted uh, an estimated 715,886 pounds or 325 metric tons of carbon since the president was uh, had sworn uh, has been sworn into office. We're glad he's taking climate seriously, although apparently not that seriously. The story is especially bad optics, given that Kerry's boss, Joe Biden, is set to announce a series of climate executive orders. And did later today or later in the day, according to the White House, the president um, beat the same Uh, drum in commending his work and the travel that was required to complete it. It actually is a border emergency, not a climate emergency. We'll tell you more about that after news and traffic here at the top of the hour. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Also in this second hour, Robert Sirico, The Economics of the Parables. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in the next couple of segments, we'll talk with Robert Sirico, author of The Economics of the Parables. Also, today is National Hot Dog Day. We'll tell you what that means. By the way, it's the third Wednesday of July. Ketchup, mayo, mustard. We'll talk about all of that later in the program as well. Well, Republicans warn um, to a $52 billion computer chip bill. And in a flashback, Joe Biden said inflation was temporary one year ago. Anthony Fauci has clarified that he will not retire, but will leave his current director's position. Deborah Burks admits to deceiving the White House and just making stuff up to push her personal agenda. 
Dr. Deborah Burks, White House Coronavirus Response Coordinator for President Trump, launched her book about her one-person attack on our form of government and our economy under the guise of saving us from the Wuhan virus. The book is called Silent Invasion, and to quote Michael Singer, reads like a how-to guide in subverting a democratic superpower from within, as could only be told through the personal account of someone who was on the front lines doing just that. The CDC has cleared the Novavax COVID uh, vaccine for adults. In a statement, the CDC says the shot will be available in the coming weeks. The U.S. has secured 3.2 million doses so far. Novavax uses more conventional technology than Pfizer and Moderna, and U.S. health officials hope Novavax shot might convince skeptics to get vaccinated. We'll see about that. 26 million to 37 million adults are still unvaccinated in the U.S., according to the CDC. There's a big gap between 26 million and 37 million, but that's the number they've given. President Trump backed candidate Dan Cox. He won the GOP nomination for Maryland governor. People speculate that this might mean that Trump has aspirations and could be successful or not. I'm not sure, so sure the connection is, uh, is there, but... His level of influence is being measured. So much for law and order. A crew member was shot to death while reserving parking places for the show in New York City. And in Sri Lanka, they've um, elected a new president. It's not an enviable position at this time. And protests continue there. A $36 million Russia Su-34 bomber was reportedly shot down by Russia's own forces over Ukraine's eastern Luhansk region. Ukrainian media outlets claimed on Monday the jet was reportedly downed near Alaks, Al, let me get this right, Alchevsk, a city near Luhansk region, one of the areas where the war is currently focused. It's currently under the occupation of Moscow-backed separatist forces, according to Newsweek. Russia is planning to annex large swaths of Ukraine. Not much news there, I suppose. And China is threatening strong measures if Nancy Pelosi visits Taiwan. Well, on this day in history, 1923, Mexican revolutionary leader Pancho Villa is assassinated by gunman Peral. 1944, an attempt by a group of German officials to assassinate Adolf Hitler with a bomb fails as the explosion only wounds the Nazi leader. 1968, the first International Special Olympics Summer Games, sponsored by Eunice Kennedy Shriver, was held at Soldier Field in Chicago. 1969, astronauts Neil Armstrong, Edwin Buzz Aldrin, become the two first men to walk on the moon after reaching the surface in their Apollo 11 lunar module. 1976, America's Viking 1 robot spacecraft makes a successful first-time landing on Mars. 1977, a flash flood hits Johnstown, uh, Pennsylvania, killing more than 80 people and causing $350 million in damage. 1977, the UN Security Council votes to admit Vietnam to the world body. 1982, Irish Re- Republican Army bombs explode in London parks, killing eight British soldiers, along with seven horses belonging to the Queen's household cavalry. 1990, the U.S. Supreme Court's Justice William Brennan, one of the court's most liberal voices, announces he's stepping down. 1993, White House Deputy Counsel Vincent Foster Jr., 48, is found shot dead in a park near Washington, D.C. His death is ruled a suicide. 2012, gunman James Holmes opens fire inside a crowded movie theater in Aurora, Colorado, during a midnight showing of The Dark Knight Rises killing 12 people and wounding 70 others. He would be convicted of murder and attempted murder and sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. And finally, in 2019, Marvel's Avengers Endgame passes Avatar as the 
highest grossing film of all time. Well, Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh's neighbors are pretty fed up with the actions of protesters near their homes. And some engaging in pro-choice activism have chosen to personally target residents rather than heed noise complaints. Well, in June, um, neighbors who painted a picture of protesters who were loud and intimidating, threatening escalation if they don't get what they want. Furthermore, neighbors claim that protesters had abused them and their children using drums and megaphones to chant, well, profanities to them and their children. A Wednesday piece in the Washington Post shows that little has changed in two months. The paper spoke with eight different sources from the neighborhood. Seven of them voiced frustrations about protesters citing jarring language and rising tension. Residents in some cases have attempted to confront protesters over their methods, but were quickly excoriated. They just call us fascists. One resident in the neighborhood told the Post, nothing about this is healthy. We've got kids on the street scared to leave their homes. She noted that a vast majority of people in the neighborhood believe the protesters have gotten out of control. Calls to reduce the noise have been met with even louder responses, including a new chant that labels neighbors as Karen's. Uh, One uh, resident said that she believes their actions are counterproductive to their pro-choice message. I do think they're hurting their own cause, she said. Another neighbor, a 46-year-old pro-choice activist, or excuse me, artist that lives in the neighborhood, has also come to view the protesters against uh, actions as disturbing. The Supreme Court's recent decision to overturn Roe was uh, saw the woman chalk out a message on her driveway, which read, reproduction rights are human rights. Her history with the pro-choice movement and with activism in general goes far back. She and her mother marched for pro-abortion rights in the National Mall when she was in middle school. However, she told The Post that she has reached her breaking point. Last Wednesday, protests became so loud and vulgar, she was forced to leave her home with her family for a long night out at dinner. I understand where their passions come from, she says, but I've had enough. Still, nothing being done to protect the neighbors or the Supreme Court justices. Rudy Giuliani will be required to testify before a Georgia special grand jury next month as part of an investigation into the alleged 2020 election interference by former President Trump and his associates. According to a New York judge, Giuliani, who once served as Trump's lawyer, was subpoenaed earlier this month, but his uh, summons was moved to New York, where he is a resident. A New York judge scheduled a uh, July 13th hearing allowing Giuliani to uh, the opportunity to fight the summons. The judge ordered his testimony for August the 9th after he failed to appear for his hearing last week. Well, the grand jury, which is investigating whether any coordinated attempt to unlawfully alter the outcome of the election occurred, subpoenaed Giuliani as a material witness earlier this month, claiming the lawyer made false statements at legislative hearings in Georgia that there had been widespread voter fraud in that state. There is evidence that Giuliani's appearance Uh, And testimony at the hearing were part of a multi-state coordinated plan by the Trump campaign to influence the results of the November election in Georgia and elsewhere. The subpoena reads, we'll see if he appears at that August 9th hearing in his home state of New York. Russian President Vladimir Putin could be facing another war front, this time in his own turf, as one Chechen battalion prepares a second offensive against Moscow. Well, coming up, we're going to hear a conversation with Robert Sirico. He's the author of The Economics of Parables, and we'll talk about National Hot Dog Day. Yeah, that's today, the third Wednesday in July. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. And by the way, tomorrow, Jeff Tracy, the grilling king, will talk everything barbecue when he joins us in the five o'clock hour.
You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, millennia before the advent of streaming services or television, even YouTube, Jesus's parables have inspired and guided people of all cultures, of every age and background. In these strikingly original stories, my next guest, Reverend Robert Sirico, uh, proves that there is indeed something new to say about the world's most familiar stories. The book is titled The Economics of the Parables. It ignites a conversation about the eternal truths about God and man that can be gleaned from Jesus' stories about our economic life, from wages to inheritances. While the book is an essential read for any person looking for spiritual wisdom applicable to daily economic life. Now, with inflation and a looming recession, these are lessons we would all do well to heed. While the Reverend Robert Sirico, he received his Master's of Divinity degree from the Catholic University of America, following undergraduate study at the University of Southern California and the University of London. During his studies and early ministry, he experienced a growing concern over the lack of training religious studies students receiving fundamental economic principles. Well, leaving them poorly equipped to understand and address today's social problems. Well, as a result of these concerns, Father uh, Sirico, he co-founded the Acton Institute with uh, Chris Almond Maureen in 1990. He is president emeritus of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty, retired pastor of Sacred Heart Parish and Sacred Heart Academy, a local parish school which uh, he co-founded as a Catholic classical Academy in 2013. He joins us now to talk about his uh, most recent book, The Economics of the Parables. Thank you so much for joining us. Georgine, delighted to be with you. Thank you for having me. I think when we read the parables of Jesus, we recognize there is an aspect to many of them that that might uh, read uh, the economics, but we may not fully glean his entire purpose. Talk a little bit about um, what inspired you to write this book uh, on the parables, focusing on the economics and the conversations you hope this will spark? Well, I, I suppose it, it comes from years of preaching. I mean, I'm a preacher, and so if you're a preacher, you've preached on the parables at some point, and of course lots of people know many of the parables, uh, but I also work in the field of economics. So uh, a lot of my work has been done through the Acton Institute, Uh, talking about basic economic principles. So as I was preaching on the Gospels, I began to see these assumptions that Jesus has about things like private property, like uh, contracts and things along those lines. And I began, I I suppose you could see this book as an effort at translating back and forth from the world of business and the world of theology. And what I found is that our logical understanding of the parables is enriched by our economic understanding of what the world was like. I'm not saying that the purpose of the parables was to teach economics. What I'm saying is that there's a presumption at the base of it that views merchants as good things, that even, uh, you know, luxury items have a place in the world. Uh, So it it was really a, a eye-opening for me to study it in that depth with both of those disciplines going on at once. You write of your uh, your book, my effort is to detect the universal <clears throat> economic assumptions at play within the stories themselves, while at the same time acknowledging that the assumptions are not themselves the core intent 
moral, or goal of the parables, and that from time to time Jesus turns such assumptions on their head to make his point. He makes several points in the process of telling a story to uh, to teach a, a principle to his hearers. Yes. Uh, I mean, of course, the parables themselves, the, 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 uh, the literary form of a parable is so intriguing because you're telling a story and you're leaving certain things unsaid in the story, which really invites the listener into it more deeply. But you're also able to speak to a wide variety of an audience so that if you're telling a parable, a child can understand it and a scientist can Mm -hmm. understand it and everything in between. And we've all experienced this, you know, just in seeing how captivating the parables are to even to children. And yet they're profound truths that are coming across in them. That's also what gives them their uh, enduring power. You said that right at the beginning, how now 2,000 years later, we're still talking about this. I mean, Georgine, wouldn't it be wonderful to think that 50 years after you're gone, people are going to be listening to your radio interviews and say, what what great insight. (laughs) None of us really think that we're going to be remembered at that level years and years after we're gone. We're talking 2,000 years later, and we're still talking about the parables of Jesus. Yeah, it's a it's an amazing thing. Now, how does your book fit into your work of educating people on the theology uh, or how theology relates to economics? And uh, again, this is such a an important topic. We would do well to glean everything Scripture has to say, and particularly the parables. Sure. Well, uh, let's begin with uh, my definition of economics, because economics, somebody once called it the dismal science. Uh, our eyes kind of glaze over when we hear anybody they're going to tell us about percentages and math and equations and uh, all of the rest of it. Use use very specific terminology to refer to things. Uh, and yet, what economics is, in my understanding of it, is almost inevitable when you live in a world of scarcity. We live in a world that's bound by space and time. We come into existence at one point, and we go out of life at another point. We are confronted by the scarcity of the resources that we have available to us in addition to time. And yet all of this is the world into which Jesus Christ came. He entered human form, really, substantially. He becomes a human being in everything, the Scripture says, other than sin. He's like us. So he gets tired. He has to worry about food. He has to worry about fishing and productivity. And he uses all of these metaphors from the world in which he was living. Productivity, you know, uh, production, uh, agriculture, uh, all of these different kinds of things. And what all of that does, in the same way that Jesus Christ reveals the fullness of God in the middle of a material world by becoming incarnate and one of us, I think that the economics can reveal to us something about God. If it does nothing more than tell us something about our limitation and the fact that we need to orient ourselves to something higher than this world, that's something. But also, inscribed in the human heart is this almost uh, quenchless desire that we each have. We all desire more than we can ever attain. Even when we attain something that we wanted very much, we find ourselves desiring more. And the problem is that many people end up trying to fulfill that desire in ways that are detrimental to our spirituality, to our humanity. And what 
all of this can teach us is that we have to have a heart for God because that's what's missing. We desire eternity because we're made for eternity. Mm. Well, one of the most familiar parables and one that you cover in the economics of the parables is the uh, parable of the talents. Uh, We think we understand the basic idea that we're supposed to be good stewards over what God has entrusted to us. But what are some of the economic presumptions of this parable and what is the lesson that we should glean from it? Well, yes, I mean, this is one of the rich ones, one of the things that people remember uh, about parables in general. Uh, Let me just point out one insight into this. As as I was reading it, both with my economic hat on and my pastor's hat on, is the perception of the third man who receives the one talent and buries it and then complains to the master. And his perception of who the master is tells us a whole lot. And it, it has both a kind of moral dimension to it, but it also has an economic dimension. He says to the master, well, you know, I knew that you were a hard man, sowing where you have not reaped, uh, or reaping where you have not sowed, and gathering where you have not scattered. In other words, you haven't planted, and yet you can gather. Uh, and And so I did the safest thing I knew. I buried my talent. Now, that tells us something both on the spiritual level, because this man is talking to the master who is the image of Christ, and his resentment against the graciousness of God in entrusting to us our talents when we fail to utilize that we, what we've been given. But it also gives us an economic insight, because really, when I read that, I thought, this is exactly the attitude that uh, socialists have about economic productivity. They think that people who uh, have uh, are entrepreneurs who are investing in things uh, somehow gather where they have not scattered, that they're getting an advantage having put nothing into it, or where they have uh, reaped where they haven't sown, that there's some injustice that's going on. And, and the way this servant speaks to the master uh, tells me something. Also, the converse of that is to think about these other two uh, servants who are entrusted and who risk. And every action of productivity involves some kind of risk. And whatever way in which this is another thing about the talents, we don't know all the details about how did they make that money? We're really not sure. Uh, And that's what enables us to kind of dream and speculate and apply the lessons that are learned in our own circumstances. But however they did it, they did it by risking just the way the master risked in in entrusting his talents. Because while the one didn't produce anything, he just hid it. It was a risk for the master to give him that in the first place because he could have lost it. And these other men could have lost the investment that they had been given. And so um, I think this is this is part of the real challenge and, and the gift that we have uh, in in the um, uh, in the parables of the talent. We're talking with the Reverend Robert Sirico. The book is titled The Economics of the Parables, and it is published by Regnery. We're going to take a quick break, but we will continue our conversation in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. 
You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show, the book we're talking about, The Economics of the Parables. And the Reverend Robert Sirico uh, is the author. He pulls back the veil of modernity to reveal the timeless economic wisdom of the parables. Thirteen simple but very profound stories. It includes the parable of the talents, the good Samaritan, the rich fool, the uh, laborers in the vineyard, the unjust steward, and the prodigal, they're all filled with lessons about caring for the poor, for stewardship wealth, uh, passing down inheritances, and much, much more. The economics of the parables, again, the book published by Regnery. Now, in writing these stories, you challenge us to think perhaps more broadly about uh, the message, the messages that Jesus is teaching as he's delivering these parables, not only for the hearers that are present with him at the time, but for generations to follow who would read those parables and look for wisdom in how to conduct uh, conduct themselves. Let's talk about one of these uh, parables, um, the uh, the laborers in the vineyard, where again the the subject of fairness is um, is brought up. What do we learn from that parable, the laborers in the vineyard, uh, that would teach us something about economics? Well, you know, uh, right off the bat, uh, what I was thinking as I was kind of looking at the book again, uh, I wish that it was a little later that I was writing it, because what I would have brought in was the whole confrontation that we are having to this day of the shortage of labor. I mean, we're, mm. we're all experiencing this in restaurants and everywhere we're going, we, the whole uh, supply chain disruption, a lot to do with people not being available for work. And isn't this exactly what the master or the owner of that vineyard confronts when he sees a harvest in front of him that he could lose or could lose a substantial portion of it. And what would be the effects of that? Just imagine for a moment the effects of the loss of that harvest from an economic perspective. Well, it would have been the loss to his own estate first and foremost, but then it would have also been the loss of the supply of the goods that were produced in that vineyard for all of those who depended upon them. So if the harvest uh, was only, let's say, a half, then in order to compensate for the loss, the price would have had to have gone up. So you have the whole question of supply and demand that plays into a loss of harvest. This gives us a sense of the urgency of this owner of the vineyard in trying to find laborers to go into the vineyard. And then we come to the workers themselves. They're hired at various stages during the day. And I think what's very important here, and this is where the moral question comes in, at each stage, he agrees with them upon a certain wage. Even in the middle of the day and late in the day, when he goes and he hires these workers to just work for a few more hours, he says, I'll pay you whatever is just. You just go in and do this work for me, and I'll just pay you. And they all agree to this. So that it's a mutually beneficial contract on the part of both of them. Now, you can imagine that those at the beginning of the day who were looking for work were glad that they had a day's worth of work. And the amount that he was paying was the usual daily wage. But those later in the day were especially grateful because they hadn't worked all day. And they thought, you know, I'm going to have to go home to my family. And I'm not going to have anything to show for the day. So they go, and maybe they think they're going to get half the day's wage, but that's better than nothing. And then, of course, the great reversal takes place. And this sense of reversal, this dramatic reversal 
Uh, it doesn't just occur in this gospel. I'm thinking it also occurs in the rich man and Lazarus, which is another one that has uh, real implications. But in this one, the last shall become first and the first shall become last. The master, the, the owner of the harvest, says, let's, let's uh, pay those who came last. And they're paid the usual wage. Now, the other guys are standing around thinking, well, if they've got the usual wage, then we're going to get more. And they come and they get the same. And here's where the moral lesson uh, becomes so clear. Their presumption, their perspective on the part of the laborer, or I'm sorry, on the part of the uh, owner of the vineyard changes. Whereas they saw him as their benefactor, they now see him as their enemy. And he says one of the most astute lines, and again, this refutes the whole Marxist collectivist uh, concept of economics. He said, did we not agree on the, on the wage before you worked? Yes. And didn't I pay you that? Yes. Am I not free to do what I want with my own property? Yes. And of course, as I say, the purpose of the, the parable is not to teach us about economics. It's to teach us about God and salvation. And of course, what does this say to us? It says to us that salvation can't be purchased, that we don't really earn it, that we, we come to Christ and he offers us his grace. And if someone comes later, you know, there's the, the story of the prodigal son, which is also, by the way, uh, in, the, in this book, mm-hmm. uh, where the older son is resentful of the younger son being received back. And it's this kind of attitude that you see here. We see it on the cross with the good thief next to Jesus. And Jesus puts him into the kingdom of heaven. Uh, you know, he didn't do anything. <laughs> All he did at the last moment was say, remember me. And so, you know, it's, it's this weaving of these economic presuppositions, these basic things, and the, the truths of the kingdom of heaven that spring out from it that I find so uh, exhilarating. Let me ask you in the few minutes that we have left, what does the scripture tell us about distributing inheritance? I think parents are often concerned about how to uh, distribute or to pass along um, their wealth without harming uh, future generations. Does the scripture teach us, are there parables that teach us about uh, inheritance that might be helpful? Well, I think the, one of the most, one of the first things uh, about inheritance uh, is not the economic question, but the moral question of the formation of the, the child, uh, the, the son or the daughter, and how they are going to handle their responsibilities. That's the first and foremost. In the story of the, um, the prodigal son, of mm-hmm. course, we see these two sons, uh, both of whom have a distorted perception of property. The young son, it's very obvious how distorted his perception because he just wants it and he runs. Uh, and the father's hands-offness with him. He says, oh, you want the property? Here it is. Let's see what you're going to do with it. And the second son, though, has a similar view to the younger son. We think the, you know, the older son is he's at home and he's toiling for his dad as a loyal and wonderful son. But really, he's only seeing his father uh, in terms of the property that the father is given because he says to him in the end, you know, I've been with you all this time. You've never, given me, you've never let me 
have fun with my friends and party with my friends. And now you're killing the fatted calf for, for your son who's wasted all your money. Uh, and he sees his father in material terms, in the same way that the younger son saw the father. And of course, this is really the, the story, not of the prodigal son. This is the, the story of the loving father, because he, he loves equally both of his sons and invites them to come back. Both of them are invited to come back. The young son, when he sees him and runs down the road to greet him, but also the older son at the end, he invites him to come in to the party. Now, we don't know if he does or not. And that's that's one of those open-ended things that make the parable so vibrant. He says, now you come in. I want to reconcile you and your brother together. So I think in terms of the principles, I, I've spoken to many people who have, you know, estates. Some of them say, you know, I'm, not, I'm leaving my children a certain share of the estate, but not enough to disable them. Because if they live off of me, then they don't ever have the capacity to produce for themselves and to know the dignity of production in the way that I learned it, you know, the, the, the benefactor, the father, the mother uh, who produced the wealth in the first place. This is a real problem in philanthropy because we see people who live big, leave big estates with certain intentions for the use of those resources, like say the Rockefeller Foundation, the Ford Foundation, uh, the True Charitable Trust. Those founders who invested that money and made the money had a very different philosophy than the people who are administering those foundations today. Mm-hmm. And so it's a, a real responsibility that, uh, that wealthy people have, or really anybody has, in terms of how you can enable or disable the people you're going to leave the money to. Well, once again, we've been talking with the Reverend Robert Sirico. The book is The Economics of the Parables, and you gleaned so much from them. I really appreciated uh, the, the depth to which you went to help us recognize that aspect of these timeless uh, parables. The book is published by Regnery Gateway. And for people who are interested in learning more about um, the Acton Institute, what's the best way for them to connect? Acton.org. Acton.org, and they can go on there. There's just a whole bunch of material that we have at every level, uh, including films, including books, essays, conferences, and the the like. So we'd love to have them. And the book is available for pre-order right now on Amazon.com. Great. Thank you so much for joining us today. Appreciate it. Thank you. Good to be with you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Again, the Reverend Robert Sirico, The Economics of the Parables. The book is published by Regnery Gateway. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. And now for something completely different. Today is National Hot Dog Day 2022. So I want to offer you some little known facts about hot dogs. For one thing, Americans will eat an estimated 7 billion hot dogs from Memorial Day to Labor Day. That's a lot of hot dogs. Well, some tasty tidbits about hot dog trivia, including how the hot dog got its name, the most expensive dog ever sold, and the requirements of being a wienermobile driver. Well, there's uh, more to hot dogs than toppings and buns. Well, on Independence Day alone, Americans enjoy the single largest hot dog day of the year. 
That's according to the president of the National Hot Dog Sausage Council. Hot dog, sausage, not quite the same, but pretty much. Americans are expected to consume 150 million hot dogs on this holiday. Uh, Here's what you need to know about how hot dogs uh, are honored on National Hot Dog Day. Well, as I mentioned, Americans eat billions of the dogs all summer. The 4th of July might be the most popular day for hot dogs, but Americans enjoy the dish all summer long. And according to the National Hot Dog Day organization, Americans are expected to eat 7 billion hot dogs Again, from Memorial Day to Labor Day, which is the peak hot dog season. So you might want to mark your calendars. Supermarket sales in the U.S. for hot dogs were $2.8 billion in 2020. Uh, and um, the number was up considerably from 2019. Now, what's going to happen this year where people can't afford a lot of what they might normally eat might find the hot dog a bit more affordable. In 2021, Americans reportedly spent $7.5 billion on hot dogs and sausages in supermarkets. Well, last year at the National, uh, the Nathan's famous July 4th of July hot dog eating contest, once again, Joey Chestnut ate 76 of the dogs. Along with their buns, it was the record for the most hot dogs eaten in 10 minutes. Not one I would encourage you to uh, try to beat. Well, Americans' favorite hot dog is topped with mustard. I don't understand people who put ketchup on their hot dog. But last year, at the start of the hot dog season, uh, the National Hot Dog Day Association published a survey that found Americans' favorite hot dog topping is, rightly, mustard. According to the survey, 68% of respondents chose mustard as their favorite topping, followed by 61% who preferred ketchup. Ketchup. I can't even imagine it, but there are uh, some in our uh, in our population that like mayonnaise on a hot dog. Wow. The uh, National Hot Dog Day etiquette rules say that adults should not put ketchup on hot dogs. So there you have it on authority. No ketchup on hot dogs. Well, some of the other favorite toppings include onions at 44 percent, relish at 41 percent, chili at 30 percent. Cheese at 29%, sauerkraut at 20%, mayonnaise at 19%, bacon at 14%. That seems a bit redundant, but jalapenos, 13%, and coleslaw at 12%. That's according to the council's survey. I've never seen coleslaw on a hot dog, but this is, after all, America. Well, last year, the National Hot Dog Association also found which region hot dog style was preferred by Americans with uh, New York style. An all-beef hot dog topped with steamed onions and yellow mustard coming out on top, followed by Chicago-style, an all-beef hot dog topped with yellow mustard, dark green relish, chopped raw uh, onion, a pickle spear, sport peppers, not sure what those are, tomato slices, and celery salt served in a poppy seed bun. Michigan Coney's, an all-beef hot dog topped with chili sauce, mustard, and onion, came in third. Well, meat delivery company Rastelli's sells uh, round hot dogs, now, Picture that. You've got a hot hamburger bun and a round hot dog, which is flat, round like a patty. It's a hot dog that can be eaten on a hamburger bun. Sort of defeats the whole idea. The food innovation went viral on social media last year, leaving numerous Twitter users confused. Uh, though many people said the product looked just like bologna, Restelli's told... Um, told critics that it makes its round hot dog differently from bologna. So it looks like it, but tastes different. Does it taste like a traditional hot dog? Couldn't tell you. 
not trying it. Well, the company said that in a statement that it uses black Angus beef and premium pork chopped together, not fully emulsified or liquefied like some traditional bologna and wrapped in a collagen casing and netting to help hold its shape. Well, that sounds appetizing. Sometimes it's just better not to know how the food is uh, composed. Rustelli says it developed the product to prevent young children from possibly choking on the traditional hot dog casing and to solve the problem of condiments always falling off uh, the hot dog when you take a bite, which is half the fun. Well, hot dogs are not sandwiches. It's still the case that they are not sandwiches. And of course, unless you have a flat hot dog, and that's a whole other story. Well, um, even though this innovation can fit on a sandwich bun, hot dogs are still not sandwiches something the National Hot Dog Day Association is adamant about on its website. You've got your sandwich, you've got your burger, you've got your hot dog. Three distinct things. He says that uh, what we're referring to is the way that 99% of the people eat hot dogs, which is in a tubular form on a bun. And that's not a sandwich. A bologna sandwich is a sandwich, and that's bologna, and it's similar to a hot dog, but it's not exactly a hot dog. So no, a hot dog is still not a sandwich. I hope you're taking notes. Though it seems pretty obvious, uh, the most common misconception about the hot dog is how they're made and what goes in them. We're generally led to believe that you don't really want to know what goes in them. But they say it's very simple, the process, about how they're made. Hot dogs are pieces of meat that are cut up very, very fine, cut up off of steaks and roasts. They're ground up into very fine pieces and they're mixed with spices stuffed into casings and cooked. So no, there aren't human fingers or other detestable things in your hot dog. At least that's what they say. It's as simple as that. All the notions that people have of things that um, they think go into hot dogs are incorrect. It's simply meat, meat and nothing else. It's what you see on the ingredients label. It says beef It says pork. It says poultry. That's what it is. And it's nothing more complicated than that. So I hope you feel better about the concept of the hot dog, which is not a sandwich. When we think of summer, hot dogs come to mind almost immediately. It's just part of the overall experience. A summer day at the amusement park or the baseball stadium pairs nicely with a hot dog or tofu dog, which isn't a hot dog, might be a sandwich. For those of you who prefer meatless versions, but it seems to me if you don't like meat, then don't try to make meat out of something that meat isn't. Anyway, hot dogs don't have to be made with meat, and anyone can enjoy the age-old American favorite food any time of year. Sure, hot dogs can be purchased and enjoyed at any time of the year. However... On the 20th of July, it's absolutely the day that they're held in highest regard. By the way, Hot Dog Day is always on the third Wednesday in July. Coming up on the program tomorrow, we're going to talk with Jeff Tracy. He is something of a grilling or barbecue king. We'll make the distinction in our conversation. July happens to be National Barbecue Month, and we're going to talk about the difference between grilling and barbecue, and he's going to give us some of his top pro tips on how to do both very, very well. So Jeff Tracy will join us uh, for the second hour of tomorrow's program. We're looking forward to that. Want to thank James Blind for producing, Sam Moppin for engineering, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a nice and wonderful, happy National Hot Dog Day. Good night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. 
Follow the show on Twitter at G-Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.